Good evening, friends. Franz Weinschenk here, pleased to welcome you to another edition of Valley Writers Read. Tonight, a very well-written and thoroughly researched Civil War story, which is really very appropriate for this year. Why? Because this year, 2015, marks the 150th anniversary of the conclusion of that oh-so-bitter war. Our story tonight is written by King City author Robert Walton, and he entitles it Lulu Garlic Contraband. Here's the author, Robert Walton, reading Lulu Garlic Contraband. Lulu Garlic, Contraband. I looked across the heat-flattened waters of the James River and sighed. I had hoped never to see this river again. I confess I am scared of it. Once on the far side, I fear slavery will swallow me again, even with the entire army of the Potomac crossing in front of us. Lulu, it's our turn. Miss Almira spoke and startled me. Yes, ma'am. The loaded wagon in front of ours started down a ramp. I jiggled the reins. Our horses, asleep on their feet, stirred. I clucked to let them know it was time to get working again. They eased forward in their harness. Our wagon creaked, groaned, and rolled down the road's gentle grade onto the longest bridge I ever did see. Boats, or pontoons they call them, tied side to side, with beams laid across them and planks laid on top of the beams. I hoped it was all anchored to something solid somewhere. The horses shied when their hooves clopped on the battered planks. I spoke sweetly to them. They shied again when the wagon wheels rumbled onto the planks behind them, but kept on pulling. My! Almira exclaimed. This is a mighty bridge, and it wasn't even here yesterday. I shrugged. Let's hope it stays put until we're on the other side. She looked at me. Lulu, you sound out of sorts this morning. I shrugged again. Crossing this river again don't make me happy none at all. You crossed it before? I have. I let the horses pull us some. There wasn't a lick of wind, and the air was heavy and hot, though I don't think it was yet ten in the morning. The James River spread to either side without a ripple, like it was a sheet of silver. Miss Almira let me think some. At last I said, I told you I was sold a second time. Yes. Well, that was a private deal. My master in Carolina owed a debt to a cousin of his, Master Eliza Hodge. Master Hodge took me and some others away with him in payment of that debt. Master Hodge had business in Richmond on his way home, and he brought us with him. You became a slave here in Virginia? Almira asked. No, ma'am but we passed through here. I paused, trying to decide what was best to tell her. Master Hodge was a tall man in his middle years, clean-shaven with black hair. He often had a smile on his face, or half a smile, like somebody told him a joke only he could hear. He scared me right off, I'll tell you. 
How so, Lulu? Well, they were going to hang some men in a town we were passing through. Master Hodge said we had to see the hangings. He led us to a square in front of the courthouse where the scaffolds were. He stopped us and smiled that smile of his. There were six of us chained together in a line. I was in the middle. The very last one was old Hosea. Hosea was as simple as a day is long and about as useful as spoiled milk. Oh, he could work a little, I guess, if you could get him to remember what he was doing. Master Hodge unchained Hosea and led him toward the scaffold. Hosea had a big smile on his face. He smiled that way when he didn't understand what was going on, which was most of the time. Master Hodge went up to the sheriff and said, This man is an escapee and a thief. I'd be obliged if you would add him to your punishments today. That sheriff was in a hanging mood. He took Hosea down to the end of the scaffold and put a noose over his head. He was fierce hot in that square. But I'm cold to this day, thinking about that line of five men with nooses over their heads. One was crying. One was cursing. Two were silent. And Hosea was smiling. A sheriff's deputy pulled a lever, and there was a big clunk when the traps let go. Then all the men were hanging there dead with their necks broke. Miss Almira swallowed and looked away from me. We watched them hang for some time before Master Hodge came over to us. He had that smile on his face, and he said, Remember that. Well, we took ship at Norfolk, big sternwheeler, and steamed up to Baltimore. And then we took a pretty sailboat over to Cambridge on Maryland's eastern shore. Master Hodge's place wasn't too far from there. Oh, what kind of place was it, Lulu? I shrugged. A tobacco plantation. Tobacco to sell, but we grew many other things. Master Hodge put me in the slave quarter, and I went to work in the fields. Seabirds swooped lazily across the bridge ahead of us and called to each other. Almera looked at me. Were the overseers cruel? I shook my head. No, ma'am. They weren't friendly, but they weren't cruel. Master Hodge wanted his slaves in good shape to work. What made you decide to run? I said nothing for a long time. Finally, I decided to say what I had never said before. Master Hodge started looking at me right off. I'd catch him looking. I'd see his smile. I knew. Some weeks after I came there, an overseer told me to carry a box of ropes down to the old boathouse on the bay. It was just at dusk. I'd never done that before, but the box wasn't heavy, and the evening was pretty, blue and mild for September. I came up to the boathouse. It was a long shed, open-ended, built out onto a dock. But lots of siding boards were hanging by a nail, and the roof had holes in it a bird could fly through. There were still boats in it. Some of the men used them to go fishing on Sundays and such. I walked inside with that box and stopped a little ways in. It was black dark in there. I couldn't see where to go. There was a scraping noise behind me. I turned, and a man stepped out from the shadows. He was between the entrance and me. It was Master Hodge.
He carried a lash in his right hand, and he walked toward me. I backed up. He said, You be a good girl now, Lulu. Do just what I say, and no harm will come to you. I didn't answer him. I just kept walking backwards through the shed. I came out of the far end onto the dock, and there wasn't much dock left. He patted that lash against his thigh and kept coming toward me, slow and easy. My heels bumped against a raised beam at the dock's end. I stopped. Master Hodge, smiling all the while, said, Be nice to me, Lulu. I'll be nice to you. That's when he jumped forward and grabbed for me. I threw that box at his feet. He stumbled and pitched to the side, right into a net the fisherman had hung to dry. That net wrapped him right up, and he began cursing, and then he stumbled again. After a moment or two, Almer asked, What happened, Lulu? I looked at her. He flopped down into the water, deep water. He thrashed around and called for me to help him. He'd go down and come up. I just stood there. I stopped again and looked away. Lulu? I shrugged. After a while, he didn't come up no more. We sat in silence. The seabirds called, and we reached the end of the bridge. I clucked to the horses again and urged them up a gentle slope onto the road. The road took us back beneath trees and blessed shade before Almira spoke again. What did you do then? I shook my head. Well, if I didn't kill him myself, I let him die. They'd hang me for sure. I panicked. I ran off into the dark, not knowing which way I was going. Finally, I, I fetched up out of breath and sat beneath trees without thinking for some time, maybe even an hour. Almira sighed. Where could you go? Well, some folks in the quarter talked about a place, a farm several miles north, where escaping slaves were not unwelcome. Did you go there? I did. I reached there at dawn and waited till the farmer came out to milk his cows. I about scared him back into Tuesday when I stepped out from behind the barn door. After he caught his breath, he questioned me real close, making sure I wasn't part of some trap. I guess he saw I was too tired and too scared to be fooling him. He took me back to his house and showed me into the kitchen. That's when the best luck I ever did have struck me speechless. What was it? I grinned. Harriet Tubman herself was sitting at that kitchen table with four escaping slaves. They were drinking milk and eating cornbread. Their eyes got big when I walked in. They looked at me just like I was a ghost. You accidentally walked into the Underground Railroad? Yes, ma'am. What happened? Well, they, they took me in. I hid out with Harriet and her passengers all that day in the loft of the barn. That night, I went on with them. Just after midnight, we reached a country church. It was more of an old house than a church. Needed painting and some fixing on the roof. But there was a cross over the front door, and the preacher was sitting on the front steps waiting for us. Don't ask me how he knew we'd be coming. He stood up when we came out of the woods. He was as tall as, a, as grown corn and lean as a fence rail. He spread his arms way wide and smiled at us. 
Harriet, grinning the whole time, went up to him and said, Reverend Johnson, a friend with friends. Reverend Johnson said, A friend indeed, and he hugged her. We went inside and sat down to a feast. Cornbread, black-eyed peas, ham and greens. We slept the rest of that night in a hidden room underneath the pulpit of the church. But not long past dawn, somebody poked me hard. Wake up, Lulu. I opened my eyes, and Harriet's face was close to mine. I could see the dent in her forehead where her old master hit her with an iron weight. She said, We got to take a walk. I followed her outside of the church and stopped on the top step. It was a fine autumn morning. I took a deep breath of cool, clear, lively air. I wasn't free yet, but I could feel freedom coming. Harriet looked at me over her shoulder. We have to walk up to Greensboro and find a man with a wagon. He's going to carry us through the town tonight. Patty Rolos are about. We need a disguise. She bent down next to the steps. Her hand darted into a basket, and she pulled out a chicken, a fat little gray hen. She handed the hen to me. The hen squawked and clucked and flapped her wings in my face. I held onto her, but just barely. Harriet said, Hold her to your chest. She'll come. I cradled the hen against me, and sure enough, she got quiet fast. I looked up just as Harriet plucked another hen, a red one, out of the basket and held it close. She said, Now we're just two slaves delivering chickens, not two runaways. What if someone stops us? Oh, just leave that to me. Come on. We walked down a dusty road toward Greensboro. Just outside of town, Harriet put on a big blue and white checkered bonnet. It's to hide the dent in my forehead, she explained. I was nervous when we passed the first houses and got into the main part of town, I can tell you. I kept my eyes down and shuffled my feet some like I didn't want to go anywhere in a hurry. Harriet stopped suddenly and gripped my left arm. I know that man. He's a slave hunter. I glanced up and saw a short, thin, white man approaching us. He sported a stringy goatee and wore a black frock coat, gray trousers, white shirt, and a string tie. I whispered, should we turn aside? Harriet shook her head. Just keep on. Don't look him in the eye. We came almost abreast of the man. As we did so, he paused to take a good look at us. The red hen suddenly leapt at him, claws out and squawking like a mad thing. That man jumped back with a curse. Harriet enfolded the hen with her arms and calmed her. She bobbed her head submissively and drawled, Sorry, master, so sorry for bothering you. The slave hunter growled, Bah! and turned away. When we were some yards past him, I whispered, That was lucky. Harriet smiled. That weren't no luck. That was a string I got tied around this hen's leg. It scares her good. When I give it a yank, no sensible man, even a mean one like him, wants anything to do with a crazy chicken. I smiled. Amen to that. Keep walking. I don't want him to look at us again. We walked to the next corner and turned to the left. This side street was very muddy, and no other walkers were near us. Harriet asked, You said before you could read good. I 
I can. She chuckled. Well, I can't. I'll need you to help me read signs. There ain't hundreds of livery stables in Greensboro, but there's more than one. We need to find Busser's stable. It should be on this street. I nodded, and we kept on, trying not to get our feet stuck in the deep mud. We found Busser's a few minutes later. It was the second stable we came to. We stepped into the wide street door and found John Busser, a bald, burly, short man. He said, Yes, we follow the drinking gourd. Busser grinned. Well, come in, then. Come in. We'll drive out at dusk. Would you care for some buttermilk? Very cool? We would. We took our buttermilk and sat on sweet straw in an unused stall at the back of the barn. I turned to Harriet and asked, What's this drinking gourd and how do you follow it? She took a swallow of buttermilk from the tin cup she held. Then she sang very softly, almost in a whisper, When the sun comes back and the first quail calls, follow the drinking gourd. For the old man's waiting for to carry you to freedom if you follow the drinking gourd. I shrugged. Well, that's pretty, but it don't tell me much. Can't you just come out and say it? Say what it is? She shook her head. I'll show you tonight. I was as nervous as a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. But I drifted straight away to sleep while I was thinking about that drinking gourd. I woke late in the afternoon. Busser came in carrying a plate with cornbread and bacon on it. You are hungry, maybe? he asked. We are hungry for sure. I took the plate from him. He said, I hitch up wagon. You eat. He turned toward the front stalls where his horses waited. Harriet called after him. Thank you, Mr. Busser. Busser waved a hand behind him. Ten minutes. We go. I looked at Harriet. He talks funny. She shrugged. He's an immigrant, German or Dutch. Those folks don't take to slavery. They come from something like it. Ten minutes later, Busser showed us to the back of an old cargo wagon loaded with boxes. He pointed to a short ladder. Getting up, please. I looked at the boxes. Mr. Busser, it don't seem like you left any room for us. He grinned. There is trick. He flipped a latch at the bottom of the first crate, and its side opened up on hinges. Go through. There is latch on the other side, too. There is room for you all, and all the others in the middle of the boxes. I put two more crates on the end here, filled with scrap iron. Nobody will lift them. Nobody will bother you. Nobody bothered us. Busser drove through dusk to a quiet place on the main road. We heard him whistle three times. The others were hid by the road in a thicket. They came out and crowded into the back of the wagon with us. Busser latched the hidden door, climbed back on the wagon box, and turned the horses. After a while, we heard Busser whistle the tune from a hymn. That was our signal to get quiet. The horses plodded on, slow as slow, and we rode through Greensboro without a soul the wiser. Some miles north of town, the wagon stopped. Busser opened the crate, and we piled out of our hidey hole. He said, There you go. No trouble. I said, Thank you, Mr. Busser. That was the best ride I ever had. Ah, was nothing, but he grinned. Harriet shook her head. Mr. Busser, it was freedom. We'll pray for you. Count on it.
He shook his head but smiled even bigger. He climbed onto his wagon, got it turned, and rolled back down the dark road to Greensboro. I looked at Harriet. Now what? We follow the drinking gourd. What? Look up. I looked up at thousands of stars. Harriet pointed. You see it? I nodded. Why, we call that one the Big Dipper. The drinking gourd. It points to the North Star, keeps us headed right. She looked up the road and took a deep breath. Delaware is not far. We'll be safer there. Almira looked at me. If you don't mind my asking, were you safer? Did the rest of your escape go smoothly? I thought for a moment before answering. Aside from one problem later on that night, the night we rode with Mr. Busser, yes. Well, what problem was that? Well, ma'am, I met her eyes. I know you've suffered some great troubles. Yes. Well, none of them is quite like being a runaway slave. You see, you carry them slave chains with you. You carry them for years before they go away, and they are heavy. They're so heavy that they, they make some folks want to give up, even when freedom is just a few miles away. That's what happened after Mr. Busser left us. Someone wanted to turn back? Yes, ma'am, it was, it was Boston Blackwell, a big old man, twice as big as me or Harriet. Well, what happened? Oh, there was some noise in the woods, and he panicked, thought the paddy rollers had got us. He started yelling and crying and carrying on. Harriet slapped him hard across the face. He shut right up, but he was still crying, big tears rolling down his cheeks, crying and blubbering. He said he just couldn't go on. What did you do? Well, I didn't do nothing. Harriet pulled a big black gun out of her bag and pointed it at Boston's nose. She said, start walking now or die where you stand. He saw the look in her eye, the look that meant she meant it, and he took off almost running. I laughed. It, it was funny watching that big old man skedaddle. Amira thought about that. At last she asked, Harriet always carried a pistol with her? I nodded. She told me there was two things she had a right to, liberty and death. And if she could not have one, she would have the other. She would shoot herself before she let any man put her back in slavery. Almira was quiet for a time. At last she said, Lulu, I'll wager you work harder now than you ever did in slavery. I laughed. You'd win that bet. It don't matter, though. Working in the hospitals is freedom work. She nodded. There will be battles in front of Richmond and Petersburg. I expect we will have plenty of work. I expect we will. dressing station near Petersburg. Surgeons' silver knives flashed in shadows lanterns could not illuminate. Screams followed every blade's shimmer, heart-rending screams 
scarlet with bloody pain. I covered my ears with my hands and tried to make sense of what I saw. Three surgeons worked in dim orange light. They cut, wiped their bloody knives on their bloody leather aprons and cut again. Attendants, two for each surgeon, mopped up blood with brown sponges or held men down while the knives did their work. Amira said, The attack was at dawn. They're still bringing the wounded in. I looked to the right of the operating tent. Still shapes, many of them, lay in darkness beyond the reach of lanterns. Almera followed my gaze. Those men are dead, or soon will be. I met her eyes. She went on. This place has three kinds of men. The ones that need operations now, the ones that can wait, and the ones only God can help. The waiting ones are over here. She inclined her head toward the left side of the tent. They're out in the dark doing the best they can. I nodded. Well, it's the usual then, ma'am. She took a deep breath. Yes, we can do something for them. Lulu, will you make a fire? Glad to, ma'am. The pots are in the second wagon. Those men need something warm to drink. Make weak coffee, and there's portable soup in the box next to the coffee. That portable soup is foul-tasting stuff, ma'am. I know. Just do the best you can. Make something hot, something nourishing, as quickly as you can. I'll check dressings and see what might need doing. Please send some of the drivers to help me. I nodded and went to our lead wagon. The driver sat where I left him. Your Sims? Corporal Sims, contraband. Miss Almira needs your help to check wounded men, Corporal. His eyes avoided mine and he spoke carefully. We done our duty. We're drivers. These wagons are here. Sims, you're an ambulance driver. You have many duties, and Miss Almira may direct you to them. Be damned if I take orders from her. His eyes, somewhat glazed, locked with mine, and flared briefly with defiance. Or you. He swayed slightly. Sims, you are drunk. Spect so, contraband. I see. I went to the second wagon. The driver, a bearded, toothless man in his late middle years, snored with his chin on his chest. I went to the third wagon. This driver had dismounted and was tending his horses. A good sign. I spoke to him. Soldier? He turned a bright, friendly face to me. Jim Hawkins, ma'am, ambulance driver. I smiled at him. Well, Jim Hawkins, can you help Miss Almira and me with the wounded for a time? We need to get a fire going and then check dressings among the wounded. He nodded. Glad to help, ma'am, just as soon as I see to these horses. Please meet me by the lead wagon when you're done. He nodded. I walked back to the first wagon. Ignoring Sims, I lit a lantern and went to a likely fire pit. I soon had a fire going and water on to boil. Jim Hawkins announced himself from behind my left shoulder. Ready when you are, ma'am. I turned and studied him in the lantern light. His open face was even younger than I had supposed. Jim, are you 17? He grinned. Just turned last week. Can you tote these blankets in the lantern, too? Yeah, sure can. Come with me. We walked into the darkness to the left of the surgical tent. We found Almira beside the first groaning man. I knelt beside her and watched as she first offered a gentle touch, just as Clara Barton had taught her, and a word of encouragement. 
Jim held the lantern closer. The man's eyes, wide with understandable fear, shone up at us. She checked his shell-torn shoulder. The bandage was secure. She smiled and said, The surgeons will see you soon, soldier. You'll be fine. I added, I'll bring you coffee and soup soon. He nodded, and we rose. We checked several more wounded men in similar fashion. Perhaps two hundred remained. As we rose from adding a dressing to a wounded hand, Jim asked, You have more lanterns, ma'am? Almira nodded. We do. Can you manage by yourselves for a short time? Yes. Well, I'll step across the road and see if some of those men by the fires will help for a while. Almira nodded. Please, go ahead. Jim handed me the lantern down and walked toward the road. We went on to the next wounded man and the next. Jim returned with three men, armloads of blankets and two more lanterns. We separated and brought relief where we could. I went back to our fire and filled pots with coffee. Two of our helpers wrapped rags around the handles and took a pot each into the darkness. Our work gathered speed and rolled downhill like a snowball until we found a boy the surgeons had missed. He was thin and fair and perhaps 18. I raised the bandage on his head. A ball had grazed the right side above his ear. The wound was bloody, but not deep. His blue eyes were unfocused, his skin clammy, his breathing rapid. Amira shook her head. He shouldn't be doing so poorly. Bill, our soldier helper, lowered his lantern. Canster shot. There could be more. I opened the boy's shirt. His breast was clear. Bill said, was legs are sound? We opened the shirt further and unbuttoned his trousers. High on his right thigh, next to his groin, a black hole oozed blood. Almira took a deep breath and said, We must get him to the surgeon this instant. He's dying, ma'am. Bill eased the lantern away. Bleeding inside. He'll be gone before we go ten steps. I took the boy's hand. I leaned close and spoke words of comfort to him. Some scripture or, or a prayer. I no longer remember. His eyes fluttered shut. His lips formed a word I could not hear. A shudder passed through him, and he was gone. Petersburg, August of 1864. I shaded my eyes and watched a carriage roll through hot morning sunshine toward us. Besides the driver, three others sat in the carriage, an officer, a child, and an unmistakable figure dressed in black. Miss Almira, it's President Lincoln. Almira shook her head. Lord, have mercy. I never believed he would come here. He has, and his carriage is slowing down. The carriage groaned to a stop in clouds of dust and clopping horses' hooves. The passengers, however, did not immediately climb down. President Lincoln leaned toward the child, listening. The child, apparently his son Tad, held out his hand, palm up. The president placed a silver coin on his son's upraised hand. 
I whispered to Almira. He gave that child a dollar. Well, the boy is Tad, his son. I shook my head. He shouldn't give that boy no dollar. Nothing spoils a child quicker than silver money. Hush, Lulu, here he comes. President Lincoln clambered down from the carriage. Tad hopped after him, and the officer came last. A patina of road dust covered the president's black coat. He brushed at it with his big hands as he paced toward us. His efforts raised a small cloud, but only caused blotches in the overall layer on his coat. He said, I ask your pardon. I am scarcely presentable. Almira stepped toward him. All is dusty here, President Lincoln. We are honored that you have come. We welcome you. He took off his hat, held it in his right hand. Thank you, ma'am. He looked at her closely. Have we met before? No, sir. I did see you from afar at Ford's Theater some weeks ago. His eyes widened with recollection. Ah, the tall young woman, so bright in the crowd. She inclined her head. I am Almira Martin, and this is Lulu Garlic. We work here at the Sixth Corps Field Hospital. Lincoln smiled. Your work was mentioned to me by officers at headquarters. I came to speak with you before I visit the wounded. I am grateful for what you both do. May I introduce Colonel Wilson and my son, Tad? He indicated them with a sweeping gesture. Wilson stepped forward. My pleasure, Miss Martin, Miss Garlic. Tad darted behind his father's back, peeked around dusty coattails, and smiled shyly. That moment, Jim came from within the main tent. His eyes went round as dollars when they saw the president, and he stopped abruptly. Almira said, I'd like you to meet Jim, our ambulance driver. He is a fine young man, and we could not do without his help. A thought suddenly struck her. Jim? Yes, ma'am. President Lincoln will want to visit with our patients. Perhaps Tad would like to see other parts of the camp. Would you mind showing him around? Jim nodded. I'd be pleased. Almira looked at Lincoln. Would that suit you, Mr. President? The president shrugged. Well, if that's agreeable with Tad, son. Tad nodded slowly. Jim extended his hand. Tad walked to him and took it. The boys looked at each other. Jim said, Come on, Tad, let's see what we can find. They walked away from the tents and the gathered adults. Are soldiers housed in the tents yonder? Lincoln asked. Yes, Mr. President. Please come with me. Almira and Lincoln walked together. Colonel Wilson and I trailed behind. We stepped into the first tent. The president had to bend quite low. We paused in the sudden shade. Lincoln surveyed the rows of filled cots and said, Some senators wonder at the time I spend with these boys. His hand gestured toward faces turned our way. How can I not? Even wounded, they lend their strength to me. They are so brave. Amira gripped his arm, a hard and sturdy arm. Oh, President Lincoln, they are. I must tell you about a boy last week. He wasn't 19 and was badly wounded in the leg. I accompanied him to the surgeons. Lincoln looked at her. Was he to lose his leg? Yes. They had no chloroform, no other means to deaden the operation's pain, so they began to strap him down. As they made to tighten the straps, he called them to stop. He said there was no need for binding if they could find him a violin. 
a violin. Yes, he said the pain would not make him flinch if he could only play. An instrument was quickly found and given to the boy. He tuned, took up the bow, and began a Corelli sonata. The surgeon took up his knives and saws and began to cut. It took 40 minutes. The boy played throughout beautifully, never missed a note. Amazing. Indeed. The operation went smoothly, and the boy seemed to be healing when he was transported north to one of Director Letterman's hospitals. Lincoln looked down. I am humbled once again. Then he looked up at Almira, and she met his gaze. Sir, she asked. Humility is the greatest gift, you know, especially for presidents. We are the least of men. Humility keeps us true to the country, true to all citizens. Yes, sir. We walked inside. He stopped at every bed. He had a joke, a kind word, or just a caring look for every torn man. He seemed to know just what was best. I marveled at his easy words and the calm he brought. We went through three full tents. When we left the third tent, the young officer stepped in front of me and approached the president. He said, Mr. President, we can return to your carriage now. Lincoln looked at him and then over his shoulder at the next hospital tent. Are there not more wounded here? Yes, sir, but they are Confederates. I will see them. But, but, sir, they are the enemy. Lincoln gripped the young man's shoulder. I will see them. Yes, sir. We entered the tent and saw the familiar misery. Lincoln stepped to the first bed. A young man with dark hair sat propped up with pillows. He was missing his left leg. He scowled as Lincoln approached and said, Good day. The wounded Confederate sneered. That's not likely. Lincoln nodded. I allow there will be better ones to follow, and I wish you the best of them. Ha! You're that devil Lincoln. I gave this leg to bring you down. Look what it got me. Here you stand. Here you stand offering me good wishes. God in heaven. I trust he is. The man glared at him. Lincoln looked straight into his dark, angry eyes. I do wish you well. Do you believe me? He stared for a moment more before his anger crumbled. His features suddenly relaxed into lines of reason and intelligence, and he finally nodded. I do. The president took his hand briefly. It was thin, delicate, almost a woman's hand. He spoke again a bit more strongly. I do believe you. Lincoln nodded to him and moved to the next bed. When we at last finished with wounded and stepped outside, we found Tad waiting in the carriage. Lincoln smiled and said, I see it is time for us to move along. He turned to us. Thank you for putting up with me today, and thank you for your good work. Almira said, You helped all of us here this morning, Mr. President. We thank you for your visit. I stepped toward him then and looked up into the saddest eyes I ever did see. I said, President Lincoln, there is no place in God's world for slavery. You are doing good to get rid of it. Abraham Lincoln bowed his head to me and then to Almira. He turned toward his carriage and stepped out of my life forever. Go down, Moses.
land Let my people go Oppressed so hard they could not stand Let my people go So the Lord said go down Go down Moses Moses That was Robert Walton reading a story of his entitled Lulu Garlic, Contraband. And indeed, it's a very appropriate story for this year because 2015 commemorates the 150th anniversary of the conclusion of America's Civil War. As we heard, the story actually contained three sections. The first was about Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, which was able to free many southern slaves. Then there was an extended section about how the North tried to save many wounded soldiers by operating on them, amputating limbs and such, thus trying to save lives. And finally, the last section was about President Abraham Lincoln himself, how he went to visit the sick, and what a great all-around president he was. Friends, our author tonight was Robert Walton. Robert lives in King City and tells us he's been listening to Valley Writers Read for a long time. He's an experienced author who won top honors in the New Millennium Writing Contest. Meanwhile, his novella, Vienna Station, won the Galaxy Prize and was published as an e-book. He also has been published by Moonlight Mesa Associates and has other e-books available on Kindle. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read program again, just get online at kvbr.org and click on to Valley Writers Read. Next week, our author will be David Moss Masamoto. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read. Valley Writers Read.